Good morning. It's good to see you. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Or what do you say to someone who is asking you the questions, why does suffering happen? It's one of the uh, biggest, most challenging uh, topics uh, that we face um, personally, and it's a, a huge issue for us as Christians who believe in a good personal God who is at work in the world. We're currently doing a series called Wise Up, and we're looking at wisdom in all areas of life. And I've been particularly looking at wisdom in suffering. I spoke a few weeks ago on uh, the story of Job, and we'll be looking at him again uh, today. And uh, if you look in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, just before Psalms, so it's easy to find. Um, the, bo- the book of Job tells the story of a guy uh, who seemed to have lost everything. And when things didn't seem to be getting, they seemed they couldn't have got any worse, three of his friends turned up and told him that the reason all this stuff was happening was because he was a bad person. And what then happens is there are a long number of chapters in which him and his friends have this discussion in which he says, I don't think I've been doing anything wrong, but I'm very upset about what's going on. And they say, it's because you're awful, that's why God is punishing you. And uh, this goes on for quite a while, and that's why it's important to read Job, I guess, kind of as a, almost as a play. Uh, there are scenes and dialogue that we're meant to disagree with. It's quite unique in the Bible. Uh, usually, when you read it in the Bible, it's true and good. In Job, it might not be. Um, the sneaky thing is, it can sound like it is, because it sounds like wisdom, but actually, it isn't. And then, as we'll see a little bit later on, uh, the book concludes uh, quite unexpectedly and powerfully. <coughs> But the question is, so how do we respond to someone who asks us the question, why is there suffering? Well, let's give it a go. I get quite a few people send me emails and things like that asking, um, just like your perspective on this, what would you say about this and that kind of thing. So here's one attempt at what I might, how I might answer them. It's good to have some good books around as well, isn't it? So it just gives you... People know when you've written with books around. (laughs) Dear Thomas, thank you for your recent question asking about why suffering happens. As you probably know, it's a question that has challenged the greatest minds in the greatest civilizations. And I have often thought about it too. You didn't mention if there was something happening in your own life or whether someone you know is suffering or if you've just been watching the news a lot. Whether your question is personal or theoretical right now, you must know that we only have to live long enough to experience suffering for ourselves. Let's be clear to start with, though. We are talking about real suffering, aren't we? I've watched people weep on the bake-off. But I wouldn't consider them to be suffering, would you? I've heard words like awful, disaster, and tragic used by commentators to describe mistakes on sports pitches and the fans as heartbroken and even long-suffering. I imagine we'll hear all those used a lot more when Scotland gets started in the Rugby World Cup. (laughs) More's the pity. But we can't really say that the people involved in these kind of things are truly suffering, can we? That being said, the worst thing you've experienced is the worst thing you've ever experienced. And comparing who is worse off is pointless. 
We live in a strange time in which we experience first world problems. I've got to tell you, the mobile signal in my flat is patchy at best. <laughs> and we're spared many terrible things. A hundred years ago, at your age, you would have been heading out to fight in the First World War, where you would probably have died or been terribly injured and psychologically scarred. I could go further back in time and talk about terrible infant mortality rates, medical operations without anaesthetic, the injustices of the feudal system, dial-up internet connections, but I appreciate you might not understand these things. <laughs> we can be thankful that these kind of things have been consigned to the past, more or less, at least in our culture. And we should notice that it was people's creative responses to bad things that brought about the solutions we enjoy and take for granted today. Now, without wishing to complain about this in the least, there are many times I would literally not have known where I was without Google Maps, it's worth noting an assumption that can creep into our thinking because we've solved so many problems. And it's that we can solve every problem. I suspect the world is more complex than that. However, many people have applied this way of thinking to God and therefore concluded that he either does not exist or is not interested in us, because suffering is still all around us. There is both a logical and an emotional force behind this. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, how can he allow things to be as they are? Because of this potent combination, suffering can be a turning point for many people. Some abandon their faith in God after experiencing or witnessing suffering. Some consider their atheism confirmed. But some grow in their trust of God and become even more confident in him and close to him. Of course, I want you to experience the third of these when you go through times of suffering. So here are my answers to the question of why suffering happens. I'm assuming in all this that you accept the Bible's starting point that God exists and rules over all things. You may have objections to those statements, but I can't begin to explain the Christian perspective on all of this without them. If you grant them for a moment and see where they lead to, you may find them more persuasive than you thought. So here we go. Here are my reasons. Number one, people do things. We all have freedom, and how we use that freedom has consequences. As the world-weary man once put it, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is that you're an idiot who makes bad decisions. <laughs> this is not a personal comment on you and your circumstances, Thomas. <laughs> I know that gnawing feeling in my stomach, that desperation to turn back time after I've done something wrong that has made life worse. This is actually part of the dignity that God has given us as creatures made in his own image that we share characteristics of him, such as our actions have real meaning and impact. This enables us to do the greatest thing, to really love, and many other wonderful and great things with positive re re repercussions for ourselves and those we know, and maybe even people we've never met. But the other side of this coin is that we can do things that harm ourselves and others. Greed, lust, 
anger, and all the other sins cause suffering in our bodies and in our playgrounds, offices, and streets. <coughs> this is why we need to learn wisdom, which is the art of making right choices. We're doing a preaching series at my church on this at the moment, which you can listen to online. I would encourage you to befriend mature Christians who can show you what wisdom looks like so you can copy and learn from them. I'm sure you'll accept that point. The second one, you might find a bit stranger. Two, there is a personal force of evil at work in the world who hates people. Now, before you throw away this letter in incredulity, I don't mean a cartoonish horned creature with red skin who goes around prodding people with a trident. What I mean is the person Jesus called a liar and the father of lies, and about whom he said he comes only to steal and destroy. In the Bible, he is named as Satan or the devil. Now again, before you start thinking I'm one of those Christians, let me be clear that I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about him, and I certainly don't ever shout at him or anything like that. But I cannot discount his existence. How else can we explain the malice that we see at work in the world, which seems beyond even human evil? Three. The world is not as it is meant to be. Everyone seems to sense that things aren't really right, don't they? It's not wishful thinking. It's an echo of God's original design, which we have caused to be messed up. Sin, our sin, doesn't just affect us. It actually affects the whole world we live in. Death has infected everything, hasn't it? When I'm watching David Attenborough's latest program, my reactions raise, range from wow to Ooh. A creature can look beautiful and be a vicious killer. There are even some reports that dolphins aren't always as nice as we all assume. This ruining of nature is not complete, but it is complex. There are countless examples of things that are both good and bad. I sometimes complain about the intermittent nature of the summer that we experience in Scotland but I never worry about water coming through the taps running out because it's always near or nearabouts. More seriously, plate tectonics cause earthquakes and tsunami which kill thousands. But they also cause continents to form for us to live on and they preserve life through regulating massive forces at work on and in our planet and they deal with excess carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. The Bible acknowledges all this. And there's no significant person in it who I can think of who avoids suffering in their life. That's worth noticing, I think. And so those are three general points. We have freedom, there is an enemy, and the world is currently not as it should be. As well as these, I think there are a couple of things that we can say God works directly to achieve through suffering. The first of these is to bring us to repentance. C.S. Lewis described our pain as... 
God's megaphone to the world. Sometimes God wants to get our attention and deal with the sin in our lives that is destroying us and destroying other people whom he loves. And the only way to do this is to just stop us in our tracks. Remember, this isn't the only reason I'm giving you, so don't assume that suffering means guilt. I grew up as a Catholic, and I still struggle to shake that wrong way of thinking from my head sometimes. Nevertheless, it's worth asking when hard things are happening, is God trying to get my attention? Is there something wrong that I'm doing, or a good which I'm failing to do, which I've been ignoring God's prompting about recently? To be clear, God will never punish a Christian for their sin, because Jesus took our punishment on the cross, and God is just. He doesn't punish anyone twice. But if you are refusing to listen to him, he will make himself heard. Don't miss the grace of this. God disciplines those he loves, as Hebrews 12 says. His correction is a sign of his affection. That's quite a good line. I might use that in a preach one time. (laughs) For you and for those you are hurting by your sin. So don't be hard-hearted when this happens. Don't ignore what he's saying and certainly don't sulk at him, wailing with mock pain when what you're really doing is creating a diversion from what God is saying to you. I know what that's like. God the Holy Spirit is willing and able to help you with this. And that's why also we're put in communities of believers so that we can confess our sins to each other. You'll be amazed how much power sin loses when you get it out in the open and ask for help in getting rid of it. The other thing God can do through suffering is like this, but slightly different. He uses it to grow us. This is another act of love. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is an example of this. He was a young man with incredible gifts and a huge ego. God wanted him to save a nation, but he only thought of himself. So God allowed him to go through several terrible experiences which started with his brothers selling him into slavery until he was fully matured. When this process was complete, Joseph was able to reflect on his suffering and say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Sometimes it's like that. Now, Here's my last reason, Thomas, and I don't think you're going to like it. You've grown up in a world full of answers, full of confidence and certainty. You may even have encountered Christians like this. But here's the final word for now on why suffering happens. We don't know. Why did this person get the job of their dreams and the other one stay unemployed? Why did those two get married and live happily ever after, and that one not? Why do some die young and some old? Why do some have seemingly awful lives, and why do some have it all? Honestly, we just can't say. And it would be foolish, presumptuous, unhelpful, and impossible to attempt to explain each case. We could try to apply the reasons I've already mentioned, but there are countless exceptions. I suppose I should make this part 
of this letter, at least as long as the rest of what I've written, so you can feel the scale of how much we don't know should dominate our thinking and our response to others. But I think that we've probably both had enough of this for now. I hope this has been of some help. Luke. Now, before I send this, have I helped Thomas? I think everything in there is right and is true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much time saying it to you. But I've missed out something hugely, hugely important. The most important thing. And a couple of reasons why I think this is an insufficient response to suffering. Firstly, even though it's a letter, and letters can feel slightly more personal than email, it's still quite an impersonal form of communication. And whether in line or whether online or in person, when we're dealing with people who are suffering and who are asking us genuine questions, we need to give them time. And if they are suffering, we need to give them sympathy. And those things aren't simply expressed by us just immediately running through a whole list of answers like I've done there. To listen and to give practical help, not as a solution, as an accompaniment to what someone's going through. These things are hugely important, hugely helpful. And I think they're much better, really, than attempted explanations and solutions. But even with all of that, there's still the most important thing missing. And the book of Job shows us what this is. You see, there are full of bad, there's loads of bad arguments in the book of Job. So you think, well, I know how this will end. Someone will come along and present a really good argument. And all the bad theories will be replaced and we'll have a good theory instead. That is not what happens. What happens and what brings resolution for Job is that God arrives on the scene. God shows up. And although I talked to Thomas a bit about God in that letter, I didn't encourage him to seek God. And that's what Job wanted, and that's what Job got. And that satisfied Job. That comforted him. And so that is what we're going to end with today. We are going to look at God and what he tells us about himself at the end of Job. And we're going to see four things. The first one is that God is the judge. I'm going to read from chapter 38. So chapter 37, someone else is speaking, a young guy who thinks he can help but is no help really. And then it basically just says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he speaks to Job directly. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then he asks him many, many questions. And we see in uh, chapter 40, verse 7, he starts a new speech again. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. 
Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Any discussion of suffering that we usually have with people, there is an assumption, isn't there, that God is in the dock, that God has got it wrong, and we're interrogating him. There is not a moment of that in what God says to Job. Instead, he's got a load of questions for Job, because God is the judge. Now, this is not how I would respond to someone who is asking me a genuine question about suffering. This is the first thing I would say to them, why is all this happening? Where was God when this happened? I would not just say, well, he was ruling all things. I wouldn't say that. That blunt an answer is unlikely to be helpful. But you need the truth of that in your head. You need to know there's a lot of space. And one of the things Job encourages about, because the book is so long, is it says there is time and space for us to talk and explore and be unsure and work through. But ultimately, the truth is, God is ruling over all things. If he's not in charge, the universe is an accident. There is no meaning. And so to say, why does suffering happen? Oh, God can't exist. Actually, it just it leaves you with no recourse to ask any questions of any meaning because everything's an accident. But we know there's meaning, don't we? If you're a Christian or not, you know it, you feel it. Even if you say to yourself, oh, well, this is just all random and it's just my uh, you know, feelings in my body working with my brain, that's why I'm feeling this way. No, you know it's real. There has to be meaning. There should be justice. And God has promised that there will be. God has promised. He is such a great judge that he is going to return and bring about such an end to all things that everyone will be satisfied with everything. When you see the scenes in the Bible that describe how, the, uh, how eternity is going to come about, how life as it is, how history is going to end, there are no complaints at that point. Because God has revealed himself to us in such a way that we understand that our questions find, if not an answer, then the answerer, and are silenced. God alone can do this because God is the judge. Abraham once asked him a question which contained its answer. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? We can say yes to that. We can, we can say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, He will. I don't know how he's going to do it. One of the things you live with as a Christian is a confidence in God, but an an ambivalence about circumstances. It's just how it goes. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses said to the people of Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And Moses is saying, we have enough. You have enough for faith. Faith being the assurance of things not yet seen. 
Those things that are secret, we don't see them, but we believe God that actually he is right, that actually what he does is good. We can trust him. So when I'm praying, uh, when, when I'm aware of things that are going on, uh, things in the news are upsetting me, things that are going on with people I know, I will appeal to God on this basis. I'll say to him, surely, surely you will do right. One of the things that we can do in prayer is we are wrestling with God. He likes that. He wants us to come at him and say, God, you have said this about yourself. You have said you are the righteous judge. Surely you will do right. And we can even say, it doesn't seem right at the moment to me, but surely you will. Lord, bring this about such that you will have done right, such that justice will have been established. And then I have to rest in confidence that God will do right, even if I don't understand it. That's a difficult place to live in between, or to live in, but... That's what the Bible instructs us. So he's the judge. Secondly, he is the creator. Here's some of this, just, a, just some glimpses of this. God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? God shows Job the phenomenal breadth and glory of his creation. He describes all sorts of different animals all sorts of things. It's vivid, it's varied, it's astonishing, it's frightening, uh, it's funny. Sometimes you think, what is going on with all of this stuff? It's all the product of God's imagination. It's all his handiwork. He does these things. He makes them all possible. Who is like him? No one. No one even comes close. When our eyes are full of tears, it's difficult to see these things. It's difficult to see anything, really. Which means that when we are not experienced in those times, one of the things it's wise to do is to learn to glory in what God has done and develop praise and wonder as your instinctive reactions to look around and see God's handiwork and credit it to him and praise him for it. Enjoying creation as part of our worship helps us see God's care and his power. It helps prepare us, I think, for when hard times come. And you live in a place where we can do this. And we are even blessed with media that shows us amazing things 
that we might wonder not simply at them, but at the one who conceived them and made them and sustains them. And even for some people, this is great comfort. I, I remember being in London once. It was, I'd moved there, and it was a hard time. Everything was up in the air, and life was just totally different. And I was there for like a month or six weeks or something like that. And then I took a trip out to the countryside, and just the relief to see stuff that God had made <laughs> rather than what we had done. And I just, yeah, God, you're in charge of all these things. And at the time, I was just my head was very confused. Didn't know what was going on. I was uh, I was by some uh, cliffs. Uh, down in Cornwall, and just looked out into the sea and just felt God say to me in that moment, I control the tides, I've got your life. And I just knew it. If we're people who wonder and praise, there is something that prepares us for when suffering comes, that we won't lose sight of who God is, even in the midst of those times. So he's the judge, he's the creator, he is supreme. He's supreme. Let's just read some of the things he says about this. He talks about creation, he talks about a number of different animals, and then in his second speech, he refers to, uh, introduces two rather mysterious creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. And they start out seeming like two of the more powerful beasts. People think, Behemoth, that sounds quite like a hippo. And Leviathan, uh, that sounds quite like a crocodile. But they are much, much more than that. Here's just a little bit of the stuff about Leviathan. God says, can you draw Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he, make, will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. And then God goes on to describe him in increasingly, really supernatural ways, phenomenal ways, and concludes with this. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high He is king over all the sons of pride. And suddenly, we cannot be talking about a crocodile anymore. There is something happening here. The Bible uh, will do this occasionally. Something starts in the natural, and then we realize it's talking to us about something beyond purely natural as we understand it. The king over all the sons of pride. I think this is a reference to Satan, that ancient serpent as he is described elsewhere. Behemoth can be uh, understood as representing death, and then Leviathan is the great enemy. And God says, I made them too. This isn't the same as God saying, isn't it great what they do? He made them with freedom as well. But God says, I made them. Often in science fiction, kind of following real life, Um, human beings create things and then those things go out of control, don't they? Uh, It can be as simple as Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, (laughs) Or it can be Frankenstein's monster or nuclear weapons, all sorts of things. But we make things and we tell stories about this. We made this thing and then, oh my goodness, look what happened. This is way beyond anything I can do anymore. That is not the case. Even with the most wild and the most wicked things in all of creation, they are still creatures 
and God is still supreme over them all and he is therefore able to work through all things for good. He is able to take even the plots and the schemes of the wicked, even the mistakes of the foolish, and work them for good because he is supreme over them all. He's so supreme that he can take Job's suffering and for thousands of years comfort millions of people through it. He is so supreme that he can take sin and death upon himself in his Son, and defeat them totally through great suffering on the cross, winning eternal life for all who will put their trust in him. He's supreme over it all. And because we see this, if you're a Christian, you see this, this is where the story ends. That God makes all things new, restores all things, settles all things. Because of that, we can confidently say we don't know when suffering happens. But we do know that God is good, that he is supreme over all. And the final thing, He's the judge, he's the creator, he's supreme. And now it gets just amazing. He is with Job. He comes to Job. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and am comforted in dust and ashes. You think, that was a long speech God gave Job in which he kept saying, you know nothing really, do you? And Job's conclusion, I am comforted. Because God has heard him and God has come to him and spoken to him. And that is the most wonderful, the most consoling, the ultimate thing, what we need. This is the wonder of Christianity's message. When you are suffering, whoever you are, Whatever you've done, whether it's your fault or someone else's, or there's no explanation whatsoever, God doesn't send you a letter. He doesn't even simply send you a really long book. He sends you himself. Him. Jesus Christ, Son of God, has walked this earth, has lived a life like ours. As Nat said, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He has been with us. He is with us. Having triumphed over sin and death, showing his supremacy, showing his right to judge all things and bring them all to a settled end, how did he leave us? By saying, I am with you always. Always. And he sends his Holy Spirit. In John 14, he says, I I don't leave you as orphans. I don't. I send you my spirit, my presence to be with you always. We don't always feel his presence. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, you'll always feel me. You'll always... No, he said, I am with you always. You can always cry out to him. You can always ask him 
you can always know that he is there, that he is with you, that he cares. Speaking after the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995, which killed 168 people, Billy Graham said, times like this will do one of two things. They will either make us angry and hard and bitter at God, or they will make us tender and open and help us reach out in trust and faith. I pray that you will not let bitterness and poison creep into your souls, but you will turn in faith and trust in God, even if we cannot understand. It is better to face something like this with God than without him. And that's the truth. And that is wisdom in suffering. And that doesn't solve your problem, and it doesn't fix it, and it doesn't stop you from hurting. But it changes everything as well. That you might know the presence and the love and the care of God. So when we're asked about suffering, we can do several things. We can listen, uh, we can weep, and we can offer help in any practical ways that are needed. If we're asked the why question, we should start with, we don't know. We should be aware of the things that I mentioned in my letter, our freedom, Satan's opposition, the world's condition, God's calling us to repentance and challenging us to grow, but then return again to say, we don't know. And yet I say to you, we don't know with great confidence. Because I do know this, that God is good. And I do know that he cares, for he has given himself for us and is with us right now. We can be certain of that. And certain that he offers it to any who ask. That's true for you today, whether you're a Christian or not. That you can know the comfort of God and be assured of an eternal joy and comfort with him. The band are going to come up and we're going to pray. Lord, the things we've looked at today are no small, light, trivial thing. Lord, I'm aware I'll have spoken or made reference to things that I don't, I don't comprehend anywhere near as fully as other people here or people elsewhere in the world. But I know this and we know this, that you, Jesus, man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, gave himself to die for our sins to bridge the chasm, to come and dwell in us now and to bring us into an eternity with you that will be preceded by you wiping every tear and ending suffering, sorrow and death. And so we trust in you, Jesus. We trust in you, whether this is all theory or painfully personal right now. We put our hope only in you. And we ask you to make your presence felt again right now, as you have done during today. 
every day as we walk with you. Thank you we can know. You are with us. If you want to stand and sing a song of trust, why don't you do that now?